The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Born to be Breastfed with your host, Marie Biancuso. Our program aims to help you bust through the breastfeeding myths and ensure you and your baby enjoy the breastfeeding journey. Over the next hour, we'll help you figure out how to overcome the obstacles you might encounter and how to incorporate breastfeeding into your busy life. Now, here is your host, Marie Biancuso. Hi, everyone. I'm Marie Biancuso. Thank you for joining me today. I'm always one of those thing one of those people who talks about trying to bust the myths. And I love talking about myths because there are so many of them out there. And today I decided I wanted to dedicate the show to just looking at myths. And specifically those myths that I have heard oh oh just day after day, week after week, year after year of why I can't breastfeed or why I don't want to breastfeed. Uh, Let me be also clear with you in saying that I have seen these in the research literature as well, but they really rang true in my head because I have heard them so many times with my own ears. Over the years, I've tried to interest women in the idea of breastfeeding. I'm not necessarily trying to sell them on breastfeeding, But I do want them to make an informed decision. People can only make informed decisions if they are working with the facts. Unfortunately, many women don't nurse their babies because they believe the myths that they've heard. And a lot of those myths don't really have any basis in science or fact. So, if you hear yourself saying... I don't want to breastfeed because, or I can't breastfeed because, then stand by, because I betcha I've got some news for you. The first one is, I don't want to breastfeed because it will cause my breasts to sag. Wish I had a nickel for every time I've heard this one. This myth probably grew up because women found that they had engorgement and later they noticed that their breasts sagged. Or maybe it was after they weaned and then they noticed that their breasts sagged. And that's a little like saying that, well, it snowed this morning and this evening my chicken was burned in the oven. There there is a sequence of events. I, I get that. But the first event is not necessarily the cause of the second event which is an analogy to tell you we don't have any evidence that shows that breastfeeding causes the breast to sag. But let me back up a little bit so that you understand what does cause, uh, well, I, I think it's really that to understand what causes the breast to sag, 
what might maintain their normal contour. Breasts are suspended by these ligaments that are known as the Cooper's ligaments, or sometimes called the ligaments of Astley Cooper. They are so named after 19th century pathologist Dr. Astley Cooper, who actually helped us to learn a lot of things about anatomy of the breast. So the Cooper's ligaments run from the clavicle, what you probably call the collarbone, and the clavipectoral fascia, which is a layer of connective tissue, and then they branch out through the breast tissue to the dermis of the skin that is overlying the breast. When the Cooper's ligaments are intact, they suspend the breast from the clavicle and the underlying deep fascia of the upper chest, and therefore the breast is supported in its normal position and maintains its normal shape. Without the internal support of Cooper's ligaments, the breast tissue, which is going to be heavier than the surrounding fat, sags under its own weight, basically, and therefore it loses its normal shape and contour. And so the Cooper's ligaments don't really hold up the breasts in that case. Sagging can be explained when these ligaments are stretched out. In some ways, the Cooper's ligaments behave pretty much the same way we would expect other ligaments to behave. They hold things in place. There is absolutely no scientific evidence that breastfeeding causes the breast to sag. I agree that Breastfeeding does occur in women who have breastfed, but that doesn't mean that breastfeeding causes them to sag. A very, very interesting study was done by Rinker and her colleagues, and she looked at women who were seeking breast surgery to improve the appearance of their breast. Now, 55% of the women in that study were diagnosed with true breast ptosis, that is sagging. And the researchers wanted to know what factors were really most likely to be noted in those women that had the breasts sagging, and was breastfeeding one of those factors? The researchers found actually that there were several factors that were related to, but not the cause of, the sagging breasts. Women who were most likely to have the condition were those that had a greater age, greater number of pregnancies, higher body mass index, larger pre-pregnancy bra size, and were more likely to smoke. There was no association between breastfeeding and breast sagging. Let's take a closer look at those factors, though. Now, I assume that you understand the meaning of greater age. That means just the women were older, okay? And the greater number of pregnancies. You should be good with that. We all know what the meaning of smoking and non-smoking is, and honestly, I, I, how it's related to sagging of breasts, I, I honestly can't explain. I just know that it was in her study. So let's get the two factors that are harder to define, but in a way easier to understand. One of those factors associated with sagging breasts was a higher body mass index. Higher body mass index means, uh, sort of in simple terms, that the women with the sagging breasts were less lean 
than the women without the condition. And that is likely to coincide with the other factor that Rinker and colleagues found, that is, that the women had a larger pre-pregnancy bra size. Larger breasts are usually because of more fat, but not because they have more glandular tissue in the breast. What's interesting here is that having breastfed and the weight gain during pregnancy were not factors that were were associated with the sagging breasts. So somebody there's got to be saying, wait, Marie, you just contradicted yourself, didn't you? Um, No, actually, I didn't. I said that the larger pre-pregnancy breast or bra size was associated with the sagging breasts. That's different from weight gain during pregnancy. So bottom line is, no, thought that the nutrients that the mother consumes today or tomorrow are the only ones that uh, her body is going to be using today or tomorrow. And And that's just not true. Or maybe somebody thought that the nutrients taken into the mother's mouth went directly into her milk. And that's just not true either. Here's the thing. We all have stores of nutrients. We take in nutrients in the form of food. And then those nutrients are absorbed, distributed, metabolized, and if they're not needed, they're excreted. So likely as not, the mother has a good store of nutrients and probably has had for some time. Remember, the whole aim here is survival of the species. If the mother truly did not take in the nutrients that were needed, her body would just retrieve the nutrients that she's had stored, and those would go into her milk. So yeah, using her own stores could affect her own health. I agree with that. So, yes, having good nutrition is absolutely a good thing. But we're still back to this question of survival of the species. The milk is going to have the nutrients in order to keep the next generation going. And if so, it will be, if if necessary, it will be at the expense of the mother. But the baby will get the nutrients. Okay, so what about the old bit about mothers need to drink milk in order to make milk? Is that true? Absolutely not. That is the biggest bunch of baloney I've ever heard. There is no truth to the idea that mothers need to drink milk in order to make milk. And I've heard this myth floating around for more than 30 years. And I just heard it again, by the way, just a couple of weeks ago and from a professional who should know better. Now think about this. Do you think the cow needs to drink the milk of her friend the goat in order to make her own milk? Not at all. We are the only species who drinks another species' milk. And while we do need some of the nutrients that are in the milk, we don't need to drink another species' milk in order to survive. And we certainly don't need to drink another species' milk in order to make our own. So what about the fluids bit? Well, I would be the first to say that we all probably need to be drinking more water. We need water for every metabolic process that our body performs. So I, I, I do agree that drinking water is a good thing. But contrary to popular myth, there are, there's no arbitrary number of glasses of fluid that are required to make 
or maintain uh, milk production or enhance lactation. It's certainly best for breastfeeding mothers to drink enough to satisfy thirst. Now, for some people, that's probably eight glasses of water a day. But for others, it may be more glasses of water a day or perhaps fewer. In the first few days postpartum, the thirst actually may be quite intense. Mothers may have had a long labor. They may have had multiple episodes of vomiting during labor, or they may have had a cesarean delivery or lost blood and have some degree of dehydration. Any of those kinds of things will certainly increase thirst, never mind the lactation part. And then as the postpartum course progresses, the lactating mother will feel thirstier than the non-lactating mother, and this can be explained by the simple concept of intake and output. Milk is an output from her body. So pretty much women often believe this erroneous thing, which is that increasing fluids will improve their milk supply, but that's just not true. The studies by Dusteker were perhaps the most compelling. They basically said that uh, when women increased their fluid intake by at least 25%, they had no change in milk volume. And, by the way, when they increased it to 50%, they had only a little bit more milk, but not significantly. So bottom line is, no, drinking more milk does not equal, or excuse me, drinking more fluid does not necessarily equal more milk. Moravian Fed, we'll be right back after this short break. Breastfeeding Outlook, owned and operated by Marie Biancuso, is America's premier provider of breastfeeding education. If you're a nurse, lactation consultant, dietitian, midwife, physician, doula, or other professional, Breastfeeding Outlook is your source for SERPs, nursing contact hours, and CEUs to meet your certification or licensure requirements in all 50 states. Join Marie at a seminar in one of many U.S. cities or learn online. Marie has helped thousands to pass the IBLCE exam on the first try, and she can help you too. Call to find out how to get an easy payment plan for Marie's IBLCE exam prep course. And if your hospital is seeking the baby-friendly hospital designation, we can help you with that too through expert training and value-based consultation. We have a variety of packages to meet your needs without breaking your budget. Sign up for a live or online course or inquire about training today. Please visit breastfeedingoutlook.com or call us at 703-787-9894. Evidence for your practice starts here. Visit breastfeedingoutlook.com or call us at 703-787-9894. The way we do banking today continues to evolve. No longer is it just brick and mortar locations or traditional bankers hours. Today, banking is 24/7. It's in the home, it's on the go, it's digital. Tune in to Breaking Banks with Brett King. 
for a look at how traditional banking as we know it has changed due to a loss of trust, changing economic conditions and consumer behavior, government involvement, and of course, technology. What does it all mean? Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Born to be Breastfed. To reach Marie Biancuso or her guest on today's program, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to radio at borntobebreastfed.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everyone. I'm Marie Biancuto. I'm your host for Born to Be Breastfed. I'd like to remind you, please, that I'm really looking forward to seeing more questions from you folks. I love questions. So email your questions to me at radio at borntobebreastfed.com. And one more time, I'll repeat that. Send your questions to radio at borntobebreastfed.com. I'll do my best to answer your question while I'm on the air. By the way, just a caution for those of you who are taking my courses this spring. If you've got questions about the courses, please don't use the address that I just gave you because that goes to a different address and it kind of gets us messed up here in the office. So uh, this is if you have a question more related to the radio show. All right, then. Before we left for break, we were talking about the fact that breastfeeding does not make breast sag. And the second one, which is you don't need to make drink milk in order to make milk and you don't need to drink a certain amount of fluid in order to make an adequate amount of milk. So I want to start again with another one that I've heard. I used to hear this a lot when I worked in labor and delivery. I would say to the woman something like, oh, you know, the baby seems ready to breastfeed. Are you ready to breastfeed? And she'd say, oh, no, no. I was really thinking about breastfeeding, but no, I guess I can't do that because I didn't prepare my breasts. And then I basically had to tell her that uh, that that's, she doesn't need to, basically. Let me go back to the wording of this myth. Sometimes I've heard this as I didn't prepare my breasts, and sometimes I've heard it as I know I needed to toughen up my nipples before the baby arrives. Now, having heard this in context many times, I realize that mothers are trying to tell me that the preparation that is needed to, quote, toughen up their nipples is sort of the same thing. A lot of times I've heard mothers tell me that they think that they need to use a rough towel, a Turkish towel, a loofah, or some other bath item to toughen up the nipples. And that's what I've heard most of the time. But what took the prize was when one mother told me that her doctor said that uh, it was a much more specific directive. Um, He said that in the first trimester of pregnancy, she needed to use a soft toothbrush on her nipples. And the second trimester, she needed to use a medium toothbrush to scrub her nipples. And on the, in the third trimester, she needed to use a uh, hard 
toothbrush to scrub her nipples. Luckily, I have forgotten who this doctor was, but I definitely remember the patient telling me about it, and I was horrified. In the days of evidence-based practice, I have to wonder how anybody could justify this recommendation. Even in the days before evidence-based practice, I would wonder how anybody with a basic understanding of the anatomy of the skin could make such a recommendation. There's really no preparation, no toughening up, no any of that stuff that's needed. I think this myth grew up because people thought that nipples were like hands, and sooner or later, the skin there toughens up and forms a callus. But nipples aren't hands or fingers, and the baby doesn't rub the nipples the way that using a shovel would be rubbing on your hands or your fingers. To understand this myth, I think it's helpful to understand the layers of skin. Now, there are two main layers of skin. The thinner outer layer is the epidermis, and the thinner inner layer is the dermis. The dermis has five distinct layers, the stratum corneum, the stratum lucendum, the stratum granulosum, the stratum spinosum, and the stratum basale, and that's the epidermis. The dermis consists of the papillary layer and the reticular layer. So the nipple skin is also built in these seven layers. The skin on the nipple and areola is both similar to and different from the skin that covers the uh, rest of the body. Like the skin on other body parts, the nipple and areola have these distinct layers, but the nipple skin has a much thinner stratum corneum, the very, very, very top layer, okay, compared to the other body parts. So it's particularly vulnerable to injury. So when you rub that layer off, you're not preventing sore nipples. You're actually creating them. So bottom line, you don't need to toughen up your nipples during pregnancy or any other time in order to breastfeed. So that brings me beautifully to the next one, which is similar but different. Sometimes in an effort to draw women into a conversation about breastfeeding, I will say to them as casually as I can, well, tell me what you've heard about breastfeeding. And the answer I get is that it makes your nipples hurt. I have heard this for decades. And in spite of the many times that I've heard it, I still don't really know how to respond. I don't want to minimize the woman's concerns. I don't want to say that what she fears won't happen. I don't want to say that if, sometimes I want to say if I'd been your nurse, it wouldn't have, but uh, but that's not appropriate. So I, I guess I, I'm just always stuck with how to respond to this. So I usually begin by saying that breastfeeding doesn't make your nipples hurt. But nipple sucking does make your nipples hurt. That's why we call it breastfeeding. It's because the baby is supposed to suckle the breast. He's not supposed to chomp on the nipples. Sore nipples are frequently reported as a problem with breastfeeding, and in most situations, the problem can be resolved by under just understanding what is the underlying cause. I will tell you that over the years, there's a number of myths that have unfolded, and 
a, a, a study that was published actually in 1980 by Carol Lesperance, who, by the way, is in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and I did a program for her people there, um, I think in the fall, can't remember. Uh, and, and what she did was she reviewed the literature and she identified 16 different factors where the, that were then viewed as being related to nipple discomfort, including sensitivity of the mother's skin, the maternal age, duration of feeding, and a number of factors, all of which I've heard a million times and which I continue to hear. And then she went on to conduct a study which showed that only one of those factors, engorgement, was actually positively correlated, that is, associated with sore nipples. Now, although she demonstrated the error of this, you know, all of these bunches of things that were supposed to make sore nipples, she demonstrated that more than two decades, more than three decades, more than, oh, brother, yeah, that's more than three decades, right? Uh, but, But there's still this misperception that somehow these things are related, and they're just not. I, I will tell you, I absolutely agree that engorgement is related to the nipples, but I want to take that actually one step further. There are transient physiologic changes that can result in tenderness, not pain. And those can be explained by the influence of hormones. Hormones heighten nipple sensitivity. And it certainly could be those hormones that are front and center right after delivery. But it could also be, for example, the first time that the woman has an ovulation and she's breastfeeding. Or it might be that the woman has become pregnant again with her next baby and the nipples will become tender. Those things are all normal. Now, in the first few days, it is especially notable, even if the baby has achieved an optimal position and latch. Why so? Well, the mother actually has relatively little milk in her ducts during the first few days postpartum or at the end of a feeding when the baby swallows infrequently. The baby will exert a lot of negative pressure. He swallows less frequently when the ducts are not full. And so, therefore, the negative pressure will be relieved less frequently. So until the ducts are more full and swallowing occurs more frequently, some mild discomfort may be present, especially in the first few days, and this situation is not worrisome if the newborn is attached correctly. Now, generally, women will report that that soreness peaks around day three when the engorgement uh, occurs. And sometimes the reason for the sore nipples is a matter of not knowing what causes the sore nipples. Let me give you a couple that just jump to my mind. For example, it may be that the mother is not attaching the baby correctly or detaching the baby correctly. Now, we all know that ideally, the baby should detach himself, but sometimes that doesn't happen. And that may be a cause of the sore nipples. So bottom line, let me ask you this. You tell me. Do you seriously think that the species would have survived if breeding is meant to be pleasurable? And if it's not, then fixable. But generally, those first few days, you can have the tender nipples, but they shouldn't be sore. Here's the last one, and that is that small breasts don't make enough milk. Honestly, this one just cracks me up. We don't think that people who have big ears can hear better, do we? Uh, 
So why then would a woman think that those with bigger breasts could make more milk? That's kind of a goofy idea. This myth probably started because someone thought that the breast was a container, just like a jar or a flask or a quart bottle. I don't know. But it doesn't exactly work that way. To understand the whole idea behind milk making, one must understand that the supply, uh, uh, how the supply of milk happens in the first place. And by the way, that's another whole show. Did that a few months ago. So I'll try to make this brief. Basically, the thing is that milk making occurs when the mother has what I call the remove to refill principle. And there is absolutely some truth to the idea that the larger breasts may have a larger storage capacity. Okay, so the mother may be able to store more milk. That doesn't mean that she can make more milk. Two different things. So yes, a mother with a larger storage capacity may be able to go a longer interval, a bigger period of time between feedings without affecting her milk volume. And conversely, a mother with a smaller storage capacity will need to nurse more frequently to maintain volume. Bottom line is the size of your breast doesn't have anything to do with how much milk a woman can produce. That's all I have for right now. We'll be back. Don't go away. I'm Marie Biancuso with Born to be Breastfed. We'll be back right after this short break. Do you or someone you love struggle with Alzheimer's disease or some other disorder? Many times, there is not an adequate support forum where you can learn from and discuss topics from top guest experts. Tune in to NeuroMatters, The Brink of Alzheimer's with Dr. Sam Brinkman. Although thought of as a disease that affects only older individuals, increasingly, symptoms are being found in people who are in their 40s and 50s. Get the answers. NeuroMatters airs live Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. Breastfeeding Outlook, owned and operated by Marie Biancuso, is America's premier provider of breastfeeding education. If you're a nurse, lactation consultant, dietitian, midwife, physician, doula, or other professional, Breastfeeding Outlook is your source for SERPs, nursing contact hours, and CEUs to meet your certification or licensure requirements in all 50 states. Join Marie at a seminar in one of many U.S. cities or learn online. Marie has helped thousands to pass the IBLCE exam on the first try, and she can help you too. Call to find out how to get an easy payment plan for Marie's IBLCE exam prep course. And if your hospital is seeking the baby-friendly hospital designation, we can help you with that too through expert training and value-based consultation. We have a variety of packages to meet your needs without breaking your budget. Sign up for a live or online course or inquire about training today. Please visit breastfeedingoutlook.com or call us at 703-787-9894. Evidence for your practice starts here. Visit breastfeedingoutlook.com or call us at 703-787-9894. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Born to be Breastfed. 
To reach Marie Biancuso or her guest on today's program, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to radio at borntobebreastfed.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everyone. I'm Marie Biancuzzo with Born to be Breastfed. Thank you for joining me today. We're talking about myths that mothers have kind of swirling around their heads about why they can't breastfeed or think they don't want to breastfeed. And one of the things that I've urged listeners to do is to base their decision on facts, not myths. So we just got through talking about small breasts and how there's no truth to it that small breasts don't make enough milk. No truth to that. We talked about uh, breastfeeding makes your breasts sore or you have to uh, prepare your nipples for breastfeeding, and there's no truth to either one of those either. So now I'd like to pick up with breastfeeding ties you down. I have no idea how many times I've heard this. Breastfeeding ties you down. And this phrase has some variations, including breastfeeding isn't convenient. Uh, This myth actually does come with some truth. It all depends on how you define ties you down or convenient. Breastfeeding is a twenty-four hour a day, seven days a week, fifty-two weeks a year job. And no one can do it for you. You are constantly on call and you need to put the baby's needs ahead of your own. I don't think there's any question about what I've just said. The question is whether or not you consider that being tied down. It seems to me that one might argue that parenting is all of those things. Parenting is also a 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 52 weeks a year job. And one might say that the responsibility of parenting never end. I remember husband and I walked through the door after a new The fact that my husband and I were in our 50s was seemingly irrelevant. My mother never considered herself to be off-duty in making sure that we were safe and well. And trust me, the only person that really does that is a parent. Other caregivers don't have that kind of commitment or involvement, if you will. So, yeah, breastfeeding does require you to have that on duty, whatever you want to call it, but that's parenting in general. It's true that no one except the mother can breastfeed the baby. The mother cannot simply hand the baby to another caregiver and have the baby breastfed. Breastfeeding is a do-it-yourself job, and for some mothers, that feels like a nuisance. For other mothers, it feels like a joy. Some mothers consider themselves infinitely more qualified to be in charge of their baby's needs, and they want to be in charge of meeting those needs. They also want to be with their babies for that mutual love and support that breastfeeding provides. 
I have to tell you a funny story. I remember a woman who attended my comprehensive course in Chicago a while ago. And she said, and while the baby was nursing, he looked up at his mother as though she hung the moon. I have totally forgotten what that woman's original point was in telling me the story. The phrase that stood out in my mind, the baby looked up at his mother as though she had hung the moon. For some women, that's one of the finest perks of breastfeeding. That's not about being tied down. That's about being elevated to a position of being like a queen, okay? For some mothers, that's empowerment. And then there's the whole convenience thing. Noted lactation consultant, author, breastfeeding expert, and my personal good friend, Linda Smith, once told me, I've never met a parent who wanted to have children because parenting was convenient. I think Linda Smith has a great point there. On the convenience, though, I see some mothers or young parents who seem totally oblivious to the inconveniences of formula feeding. Going to the store, loading the product in the car, putting the shelf, the, the product on the shelf, getting up to make the formula in the middle of the night, washing the nipples and the bottles and the related paraphernalia to say nothing of what a nuisance it is to drag all of that stuff around with you if you're not at home. That doesn't sound convenient to me. Most parents have seen only the ready-to-feed bottles of formula that they saw at the hospital. And they don't realize that once they get home and they buy the powder or the concentrated forms, it takes a fair amount of time to do all of that mixing and washing that is associated with formula and feeding. And by the way, doing that at 2 a.m. sounds especially inconvenient to me. I would rather just kind of wake up a little bleary-eyed, grab my baby, put him on the breast, and be done. It's always there. It's always the right temperature. It's always the right amount. It requires no preparation. To me, that is the ultimate fast food. All right, here's the next one I want to tackle. You can't take any medications if you're breastfeeding. Well, my wonderful friend and uh, colleague, Ann Davis joined me on my radio show to talk about drugs and breastfeeding. I won't steal Ann's thunder, but I'll try instead to give you sort of a Cliff Notes version. Ann had this great word picture for it. She said, well, some people think the pill goes in the mother's mouth, she swallows it, and then it pops out of the nipple. And that's just not true. That's a great word picture. Because it's just not true. It doesn't work that way. And Anne and I also talked about how many, if about how the fact that many drugs, if not all, that's another whole story. Let me give you the bottom line about drugs and breast milk. There are very, very few drugs that affect the mother's milk in a way that would make the mother's milk unsafe for her baby under most 
circumstances. This is something that really needs to be hammered out between the mother and the primary health care provider who is prescribing the medication. It really needs to be a risk-benefit discussion. There is not a one-size-fits-all mandate, and there certainly is, is no mandate that all drugs have bad effects. Okay, here's the next one. You have to give up, fill in the blank, whatever. You have to give up chocolate. You have to give up coffee, et cetera, et cetera. I did one entire show called, was it something I ate? Basically, in that show, I gave the science behind how food actually does have an effect on the milk. Uh, I, uh, that is true. But how it affects the milk is not usually all that we say that it is. Let me give you the Cliff Notes version for that show. I basically said that science cannot establish a clear cause and effect relationship between the consumption of certain foods that the mother has and the baby symptoms after the mother consumes those foods that are supposedly bothering the baby. This this myth probably got started because mothers realized that their babies had difficulties of some kind, stomach difficulties or whatever it was, and they attributed it to a food that they had eaten earlier. But science really doesn't substantiate that claim. It doesn't bear that out. I tell mothers they can eat pretty much anything they want to. In general, they can have a self-selected diet. True, too many cups of coffee or too much dairy food or too many peanuts or whatever can be bothersome. Personally, I'm not a big fan of chocolate, but I don't forbid women from eating chocolate. I am very aware that for some mothers, especially new mothers, this is their comfort food. So it's okay if you want to eat your chocolate. By the way, I know of one woman who said to me, I can sit there and eat the whole box and it doesn't bother my baby at all. And I was like, ooh, wow, okay. (laughs) Um, Same thing with the coffee. It does seem to make some kids a little um, irritable. But again, it goes back to how much are you taking in? And I can tell you right now, if somebody told me that I couldn't have my coffee, I would be one ugly person because I like having my coffee. Thank you very much. So I don't think there's really too much that you need to, quote, give up. There may be a few things that you may need to watch the volume of consumption. But bottom line is, taken in moderation, most foods don't and won't bother the baby. Just don't overdo it. Just watch yourself. You should be good. And before we leave this segment, let me just say we've been talking about things to give up or rather not give up. We've talked about medications and we've talked about uh, tying you down. When we come back, we'll talk about, oh, I can't breastfeed because I'm too nervous and because I can't ever give the baby a bottle if I do. 
I'm Marie Biancuto with Born to be Breastfed. We'll be right back after this short break. Breastfeeding Outlook, owned and operated by Marie Biancuzo, is America's premier provider of breastfeeding education. If you're a nurse, lactation consultant, dietitian, midwife, physician, doula, or other professional, Breastfeeding Outlook is your source for SERPs, nursing contact hours, and CEUs to meet your certification or licensure requirements in all 50 states. Join Marie at a seminar in one of many U.S. cities or learn online. Marie has helped thousands to pass the IBLCE exam on the first try, and she can help you, too. Call to find out how to get an easy payment plan for Marie's IBLCE exam prep course. And if your hospital is seeking the baby-friendly hospital designation, we can help you with that, too, through expert training and value-based consultation. We have a variety of packages to meet your needs without breaking your budget. Sign up for a live or online course or inquire about training today. Please visit breastfeedingoutlook.com or call us at 703-787-9894. Evidence for your practice starts here. Visit breastfeedingoutlook.com or call us at 703-787-9894. Tune into Lotus Radio, Nourishing Life with Jane Dabu. Every week for everything you need to take personal responsibility in your quest for optimal health. We'll discuss topics pertaining to alternative medicine, as well as answer your questions about diseases, health, mental, and emotional conditions, and spirituality. Our guest experts include researchers, medical professionals, and advocates. Lotus Radio can be heard live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Born to be Breastfed. To reach Marie Biancuzo or her guest on today's program, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to radio at borntobebreastfed.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everyone. I'm Marie Biancuzzo with Born to be Breastfed. We were just talking about some of the myths of why women think they can't breastfeed or choose not to breastfeed. And my advice has been make sure that you're basing your decision on fact, not on myths. Let me give you the next myth that I've heard many times. Oh, I'm too nervous to breastfeed. Um, I admit, I don't really know if this is a myth or not. I will cheerfully admit that over the years, I have seen that nervous Nellies do seem to have trouble breastfeeding their babies but on the other hand, I would also say that the biggest bag of nerves I ever met in my whole life was my mother. She fretted about everything, really. She was a 100-pound bag of nerves. But she very successfully and very calmly breastfed all of her kids for many months. And by the way, my mother could work breastfeeding into the conversation with any young woman that she 
ran into. So I guess it was a positive experience. I think it might be useful to look at this I'm too nervous thing in terms of the difference between a stressful event and a generalized anxiety state. And then, of course, there's the whole idea that if the mother actually does breastfeed, she actually will become less anxious. Let's talk first about the stress. I think that uh, I think of stress as sort of an event rather than just the general uh, I'm too uneasy, I'm too on edge or whatever. So when you think about the stress, there is clear research, there has been for many years, that shows that stressful events can inhibit the mother's letdown reflex. Now, if the milk doesn't let down, then the milk won't be removed by the baby. If it isn't removed by the baby, then the breast won't refill with the milk, and then the cycle just keeps repeating itself, and the mother truly doesn't have enough milk. So it's absolutely important that the woman have a good letdown and that that it goes along with that. You've heard me talk about it before. Remove to refill idea. But research that was done, oh, I think it was in the 1950s. I know it was with the Newtons and they noted that when women were, when they put their feet in ice water, that that was a stressor. And the women were unable to achieve a letdown when they had that as a stressor. So, yes, there absolutely is some truth to to the idea that people can get stressed and they can't let down their milk. Uh, what about what I would call just general anxiety, uneasiness, whatever, whatever. Um, Dr. Allison Stubbe, who is one of my favorite researchers, in her 2013 study, she showed that women who had high anxiety and depression scores were more likely to have lower levels of oxytocin. That's the hormone that governs the letdown, okay, during a breastfeeding. And with the higher anxiety and depression scores, they were uh, uh, certainly associated with that negative effect. So, yes, uh, uh, excuse me, with a negative affect, that's what I meant. And and by affect, I mean uh, women reporting feeling less happy or more depressed or overwhelmed or stressed or whatever. But the anxiousness actually can be decreased in a number of ways that uh, that are not necessarily drugs. And women are increasingly more interested in looking at that. Anxiety levels, uh, just to say that because of the hormonal influence of prolactin, actually, women are less likely to be anxious when they're breastfeeding their babies because the prolactin has a calming effect. So no truth to the idea that women can't breastfeed because they're too nervous. They can, they do, they're very successful and breastfeeding can, if anything, help them with their anxiety. And finally, the last one. Oh, breastfeed because that baby will never take a bottle. Babies who have been willing to suckle a breast after they've been given a bottle with an artificial nipple. I will cheerfully admit that I personally would be reluctant to offer the baby a bottle with an artificial nipple unless there was a serious reason to do that. The act of suckling and the advantage of the mother's breast is physiologic and absolutely advantageous to the baby in a number of ways. 
But advantage or disadvantage is not what we're talking about here. The myth that we're talking about is whether or not the baby will actually suckle the breast after he has suckled the body and uh, the the bottle. And I will tell you, absolutely, he will. I think this myth got started because professionals, often nurses, and I used to be one of them, by the way, talked about nipple confusion. Is there any such a thing as nipple confusion? We don't know. Uh, neither from the literature nor from my personal experience. I will absolutely tell you that I've seen some babies who, once they have suckled a bottle with an artificial nipple, they're very reluctant to suckle the breast. I, I absolutely will say I've seen that. But first of all, keep in mind, there's a couple of things that are important here. The idea of sucking, when the baby suckles the breast, he does it with a different tongue action than when he sucks the artificial nipple. So I believe that that is part of what might explain the phenomenon that I've sometimes seen. But I would also say that if you look at the study by Neifert, Lawrence, and Seacat, I'm thinking it was about 1995 or so, what you'll see is they absolutely could not prove that there's such a thing as nipple confusion. They do, however, address the concept of imprinting. And we know that babies have these imprinting experiences And that may affect whether or not the baby will accept an artificial nipple after he has suckled the breast. I would also say just remember that it depends on what stage of the game you're talking about. If you wait until the baby is about three months old, I will tell you it is very difficult to get the baby to accept an artificial nipple because he has... uh, he is he is now sucking in a way that is more deliberate, whereas in the first three months, he was sucking in a way that was more reflexic. And so his reflexes just kind of plugged in, and there he was. Not so when you are past that three-month period. So bottom line here is, yes, you can get a baby back on the breast after he's had the nipple, but there are a number of factors that figure into that. Wow, I swear this show always goes too fast. I never have room to tell you everything that I want to tell you. I want to absolutely invite you for questions. Please send those to radio at borntobebreastfed.com. Please visit my website at borntobebreastfed.com for a preview of what's coming up next week. And if you are interested in professional continuing education about breastfeeding and lactation, remember, I'm your source for evidence-based practice and education on the web and sometimes in your city. Again, that site is borntobebreastfed.com. I'm Marie Biancuzzo, and I promise I'll help you to cut through the myths, clarify the facts about breastfeeding next Monday, same time, same channel. In the meanwhile, remember, your baby was born to be breastfed. Have a great week. Thank you for tuning in this week to Born to be Breastfed. Please join Marie Biancuzo next Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. This week, do its best for you and your baby.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.